Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 56 Espionage I'm a Spy I have so many questions Then of course there's the question on everyone's mind Then I'll ask the obvious question Start asking questions You're the answer son Welcome to Mosaic. I'm your DC Films apologist, Doc, and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and are excited by the Justice League universe. This episode, we look into the secret world of spies, secret agents, and espionage for insight into raising Clark undercover. This show dives deep into the Justice League universe for answers and insight as we celebrate the films that make up that universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC films and who love to chew their food. Justice League is right around the corner, and I can't imagine all the world building it's going to bring to the table. One thing that makes these films so compelling to me is the depth and the breadth of meaningful topics that they touch on. Lately, we've looked into fantasy, sci-fi, pathos, and prestidigitation. This episode, it's espionage, and how there's a surprisingly coherent through-line on spycraft in just four films. In our last few episodes, I've anchored the analysis to history. Tolkien, Wells, Aristotle, or Houdini. This time, I'm more interested in showing how these films walk through the history of espionage themselves. Wonder Woman shows us the clandestine past, with ancient attitudes and the start of modern military intelligence. Batman v Superman is our clandestine present, how intelligence works today, with fingers in everything but rarely able to go on the record. Suicide Squad is a peek into our dystopic clandestine future, where the intelligence community runs amok, waging and creating secret wars, and will end up continuing our Man of Steel commentary and how it acts as Jacob Marley to these three specters, a portent of things to come, how Jonathan and Martha prudently predict the principles Clark will need to ponder. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so I'm cutting most of the literary and pop culture history. In the show notes, you'll find a wealth of research to dive into. Instead, I'm going to cheat and pretend that we talked about the rise and the fall of turn-of-the-century spy fiction in response to war, and the parallels with the superhero genre, with a later resurgence and revitalization. Just imagine that we talked all about Ian Fleming and John le Carré, James Bond and George Smiley, and that we went decade by decade with all the developments. <laughs> Let's conspire and make believe that I covered the evolution and ubiquity of present-day spy fiction, and say that I pointed out that we're so steeped in spy fiction that our Trinity actors have each played secret agents at least twice, and that I somehow make this magnificent transition to our main topic some 50 minutes into that podcast. I finally turn to the DC films that you're actually interested in. <laughs> so we're going to pretend all that happened, and we're going to start with Wonder Woman. A quick primer on elementary espionage concepts. Spies, of course, arise out of warfare and were the evolution of the military scout. In war, there is strategy and tactics. Strategy is long-term, big picture. 
Tactics are immediate, focused implementation. For example, strategy is where to send your army. Tactics may be what formation they use or how they use cover. A third category, operations, is the bridge between the two. Military intelligence refers to any and all information on these matters about the enemy. But often, the most salient and decisive intelligence is on the strategic level. For example, sending scouts ahead to observe the strength of the enemy's forces or report back their movements to be analyzed and predicted. It's an obvious advantage to have this information in commanding your troops. Now consider the advantage of having this information even earlier and definitively if a spy acquires the enemy's commands, plans, or strategy instead of having to infer it from distant observation. To know what your enemy is going to do even before they've done it would be decisive. The intelligence community is looking for plans and intentions of our enemies. I mean, that's if you really, really boil it down, that's what you want. What are they going to do? So what's the difference between a spy and a scout? In broad terms, a scout uses only tactical secrecy if using secrecy at all. For example, a scout could rely upon speed and range to prevent enemy retaliation. If the enemy is on foot and the scout is on horseback, or if the enemy is at the bottom of a valley and the scout is at the top of a mountain, even if the enemy perceives the scout, they can't do anything about it. The scout's horse can outrun an army on foot, or they can't catch the scout climbing a mountain. If the scout uses secrecy, it is stealth cover, camouflage, darkness, distance, or silence, all used in the short term to recover mostly short-term information. But if the scout is caught, there's no question where their allegiance lies or what they are. Contrast this with the spy who is supposed to rely on secrecy in all respects. They will also employ stealth, speed, and distance to hide their intelligence gathering, but they are also required to hide long-term to recover long-term information, which can demand lies, disguise, deception, distraction and deceit. Even if you catch a spy, it may be unclear whether they are a spy or who they're working for, etc. And that deceptive element creates a certain amount of unease about espionage, which Wonder Woman's chronology and characters allow us to illustrate. For example, Diana represents a naive view of warfare because she was raised on bedtime stories and had never truly known war. Diana has these idealistic views because Hippolyta deliberately fostered them. That Idealism and idyllic upbringing means that she carries herself with a self-confidence not weighed down by rejection, doubt, or uncertainty. And that makes for an interesting character where she isn't held back from acting on her principles because she doesn't know the disillusionment that her mother decided to shield her from. Hippolyta personally experienced the horrors and disillusionment of war, but, like many histories and cultures before her, tried to tell a more idealistic version of the story for future generations. Hippolyta is telling the tale of chivalry, or Bushido, but leaving out the intrigue of the court or the mercenary ninja. However, she does not believe the tale to the same degree that Diana does. On the other end of the spectrum, you have Antiope, who also lived through the same events as Hippolyta and approaches things more pragmatically. I'm not saying Antiope is a spy, but as a general, she's forced to confront the pragmatic reality of warfare. And that means that she pushes back against some of Hippolyta 
Lilith's hopes and Diana's beliefs. Antiope challenges Diana's conception that warfare would be fair or honorable. Hippolyta hopes that war will never be necessary, so she puts her foot down and says there will be no training. But Antiope subverts Hippolyta's hopes and authority by training Diana in secret, to which Hippolyta says, disobeyed, betrayed by my own sister. In an absolute sense, Hippolyta is right, but in a practical sense, we enter the grays of what is required in war. So let's leave the Amazons for now and look to Steve Trevor as a spy. I am a spy! I'm a spy. I'm a spy. Those grays, erosion of authority, disobedience, and betrayal is inherent in espionage because spies essentially embody relativism and the lies needed to do the deed. In terms of relativism, it's that every nation holds that spying for your side is always okay. Spies from the other side are always wrong. And this is relative to every side or nation. And because it's illegal, they must lie to keep from getting caught. Lying is intrinsic to spying. You mean you were Lying? I'm a spy, that's what I do. How do I know you're not lying to me right now? Skillful lying demands strong self-control and theory of mind theory of mind, meaning the ability to anticipate, imagine, or know the thoughts of others. Self-control and this mind-reading ability are the building blocks of success, empathy, understanding, and compassion. But it also isn't too hard to see how spying is fraught with moral and ethical hazards. It puts the spy outside any recognized authority. They're outside the borders of their own country, and in a foreign country where they disobey and flout its laws. But at the same time, they're an outsider to their own culture, norms, and society, and expected to understand, blend in with, follow, and emulate the ways of the foreign country. And as an outsider attempting to pass as an insider, that has to foster understanding at least, if not empathy and sympathy, for those other ways. Belief tends to follow behavior, like the expression, fake it until you make it. So how long can you live a lie before it becomes a kind of truth? Of course, <laughs> this is for people with normal empathy, and for that reason, many Many successful spies are, to some degree, essentially psychopaths. If we take the iconic spy figure James Bond, the British uh, Secret Service agent 007 himself, you find that James Bond is probably one of the most nailed down functional psychopaths that there is. I mean, James Bond is ruthless, he's fearless, he's extremely focused, he's mentally tough, he's of course absolutely without conscience and remorse, he's one of the biggest philanderers that's ever worked for the British Secret Service. I mean, James Bond is absolutely one of the classic examples of a functional psychopath. Those characteristics are being used to benefit society. I've interviewed a lot of special forces soldiers. In special forces, you can't afford to dwell on the fact that you've pulled a trigger and killed someone. If you do, then the next bullet could be going through your head. So you have to be very emotionally detached in kind of professions like that. I mean, I think it was the writer George Orwell once wrote that good men sleep soundly in their beds at night because rough men stand ready to do violence on their behalf. <laughs> Steve shows a hint of this when he attempts to seduce Dr. Morrow. If we step back and ignore sides and sympathies, what he's doing is really rather cruel. To make someone believe that there is an intimate connection or to love convincingly when there's nothing actually there is problematic. We'll talk more about how corruptible intelligence work can be a little later. However, by and large, what we see from Steve is a really impressive display of how the mental tools of a spy make him a remarkable man, even perhaps above average. <laughs> So I didn't fully appreciate it until re-watching Wonder Woman recently, but note how quick, 
flexible and adaptable his mind is, how the situation can change or be insane, and he always manages to roll with it. In MI6, you are expected to be a bit of a lone wolf, go out there, be self-sustaining, resilient, and be able to pressure and turn people to report back to you. When you have the autonomy of a spy not receiving immediate or granular orders, and you're thrust into the alternate reality of the enemy, you have to have this skill. Otherwise, you give yourself away reacting to their world as if it were unnatural. So even when Steve is confronted with a mythological island of Amazons, or Diana goes where she isn't expected to go, or Wonder Woman starts to cross no man's land, or Ares turns out to be real, Steve doesn't just sit there in disbelief and inaction, but he adjusts, adapts, and acts. Steve comes up with the infiltration of the castle, or the exfiltration of the bomber on the fly, because he isn't rigidly tied to command structure or a single conception of reality. Much of this is borne out in the pragmatism of warfare and spycraft. In terms of self-control, Steve doesn't demand Diana dispel her illusions. Instead, Steve has great insight into how others think. He knows how to pass behind enemy lines. He knows how Diana will be seen. He knows what the generals are thinking, and he exercises self-control with them. We can use that incident with the generals to further illustrate strategy, operations, and tactics. Steve, Diana, and the generals share the same strategic goals, to minimize casualties. They want to achieve this operationally different ways. The generals want to do that by securing the armistice and ending the war. Diana wants to do this by ending the influence of Ares and ending the war. And Steve wants to do this by destroying a weapon he believes will prolong the war. Their conversation relies on different tactics. The generals rely on their authority. Steve tries to appeal with his information, and Diana tries to shame them into supporting Steve. When Steve understands their position, he changes tactics, and they retreat, and Diana is upset. You didn't stand your ground. You didn't fight. She would have persisted in that tactic against the generals. But Steve shows his theory of mind. He says, because there was no chance of changing anything. He gives up on the tactic, but not the operation or strategy. He's still going to find that factory and minimize casualties, even if he has to go around the authority of the generals to do it. Where have we seen this before? Wasn't it with Diana going around Hippolyta's authority to train? Why didn't Diana stand her ground or fight with Hippolyta? It's because, like Steve, eventually she understood that tactic wouldn't work. And, to Steve's credit, when Diana puts down his friends with liar, murderer, and smuggler, Steve could have gone after her. He could have said, you went behind your mother's back. You shot someone on that beach, and you were going to smuggle the sword and me off that island. Who are you to judge my friends? But he doesn't. He's fully entitled to make that argument, but instead he uses himself as the example. It's impressive how Steve deals with someone he disagrees with. There are many times the flaw in the argument is obvious. The opportunity to attack is ripe when it's easy to show their weakness, but most times Steve has understood that isn't the best tactic. When the overall strategy is to have others appreciate what you're saying, operationally you can get there by winning the argument, and tactically that can mean going after them. But if you make the tactical choice not to go after them, operationally put an emphasis on communicating your ideas over winning arguments, then strategically that may bring people to appreciate your message. Humans are emotional creatures, and often our responses are dictated more by how a discussion makes us feel 
feel versus the logical content of the arguments. Maybe. I'm not going to pretend that Steve worked this way all the time. At the end of the day, he had to hit people, shoot people, and fight with them sometimes. But maybe this is something to keep in mind as we move through the rest of this. And on that point of logic, I'm going to raise a few observations. Not to disparage the film, but to reinforce my overall master apologetic that this is Diana telling a fanciful bedtime story after the fact and not entirely accurately. For example, when Hippolyta tells the Amazons to fire their bows, well, obviously she wouldn't have said fire since that usage arose from the advent of firearms. And a little later, Diana says, where I come from, generals don't hide in their offices like cowards. Well, of course, where Diana comes from, they don't have offices, right? She didn't know what a secretary was. So how does she have the context to make this accusation? It's because Diana is telling a story a hundred years later. And I provide all this as preamble because the alleyway scene under the lens of realistic spycraft, <laughs> well, let's start with some of the authentic touches. I'm not going to get into all the history, but it's very plausible that an American soldier would be operating with British intelligence as an allied spy. America had practically no foreign intelligence network, and British intelligence was key to bringing America into the war. Woodrow Wilson despised espionage, but British intelligence showed how enemy agents were undermining America, and it outraged him into participating. Of course, the British networks weren't much better. By way of example, at the start of the war, MI5 had some 15 agents, which increased 50-fold by the end of the war. Even so, the Allies had trouble developing spy networks in Germany, only able to rely upon freelancers in occupied territory. And this is something well reflected by who Steve recruits. My boss at the time, Steve Trevor, was fond of missions that weren't strictly on the books. And when he went out on these excursions, he enlisted a team of gentlemen who were not at all gentle. Sammy, he's a charmer. He can speak a gazillion different languages. Charlie is a Scot. He's a sharpshooter. Finally, we have the chief. He's a lot quieter. He preferred not to fight. He could toss a grenade further than anyone. He was an expert smuggler. And Steve used to say he could get you anything you needed at only a moment's notice. And he did. Germany, on the other hand, was quite good at infiltrating and developing networks among the Allies. So it's plausible for Steve to have been surrounded by spies in London, even if those spies were rather clumsy at their craft. <laughs> They're spotted by Etta, which is why she's able to cut off their escape. And they're spotted by Steve, which is why they duck into the alley. There's many ways they could have accomplished their task successfully and silently, but for the sake of the story, it goes the way it does. It's more of an anachronistic injection of spy adventure into the story, similar to the introduction of the cyanide pill, which in actual history wouldn't be invented until several decades later. It sticks to conventions and clarity over logical consistency like the gunshots going unnoticed in an urban center, or the suited man giving away his connection to Ludendorff, and that they are after Dr. Maru's notebook. This makes the story crystal clear for the audience, but a bit of a mess from a clandestine perspective. That declaration means that they aren't just hired guns with plausible deniability and no idea about the big picture. No, this means that they receive their orders by way of Ludendorff with a clear known objective. It also means that they're just the tip 
tip of the iceberg, because they didn't come all the way from Germany to London. Rather, they were already a spy cell in London who received word and were activated for this purpose. And that means that these spies are brimming with valuable intelligence, information on how communications are coming in and out of the country, the mechanism by which the notebook was to make its way back across enemy lines, and any other cells or spy network infrastructure that that would uncover. And if they were turned, who was their handler and how were they convinced? And if they did infiltrate, how did they do it? And where was the weakness in the border? These spies were proof positive of the importance of the notebook, Steve's claims, and Ludendorff's intentions, going so far as to activate and expose a spy cell. This laid into the war shows an intense desire to immediately use the gas or conceal it. And finally, there's the fact that Steve spends so much of the film looking for Dr. Maru's gas factory when the recovery and return of this notebook would, by necessity, make its way back to Dr. Maru. Wouldn't following that trail to the very thing that you're looking for be valuable? <laughs> so, of course, the suited man takes his anachronistic suicide pill to end any inquiry. <laughs> but he isn't the only spy. Certainly, the spy Steve slugged was unconscious and incapable of taking his own life before he could be secured for interrogation. And they have a lasso of truth. The lasso of Hestia compels you to reveal the truth. It is pointless and painful to resist. Instead, I think the off-screen logistics is that Etta handles the cleanup and the capture of the spies, and beyond that we're supposed to forget about them. Steve seems to too, because the nagging question that ought to remain in the mind of a spy is, what if there are more? It's awfully convenient that an entire cell accost Steve together so that they can all be apprehended. But in the real world, not everyone would engage the target and you wouldn't activate every cell. Steve is on a search and destroy mission that is against Ludendorff's interests and Allied Command's orders. He should be doubly paranoid about being observed, compromised, or court-martialed. It's a very authentic aspect of what we do. We always see ghosts. When we're looking for surveillance, if you look at 10 people, two or three or four or five of them might be what we call ghosts, not actually surveillance, but it can make you alter your plans. The paranoia that kicks in when you do feel that you can't trust anyone, any corner you turn any car that drives past that does eat away but instead they're so unaware of their surroundings a gunman is able to walk right up to charlie and stopped only with diana's intervention of course this is overthinking it with the lasso around his wrist steve declares that his plan is terrible and accordingly it is <laughs> I've gone on too long on this. There is so much more ground to cover. And let's just tease some of these ideas and you can explore them on your own. It's a bit of a grab bag, so bear with me. Sir Patrick says, It is a very, very honorable thing that you're doing. However, this was prefaced by saying Steve could be court-martialed. So, some other time, let's talk about honor, authority, and obedience. There is a ton of rebellion in these movies, and I'm dying to talk about it one day. Sir Patrick is, of course, Ares in disguise. And the Olympia and their demigod offspring were well known for using disguise as a way to commune with mankind. Given how long Ares has operated undercover, he's arguably the best spy among them. The language ability is raised and has always been critical to espionage and intelligence. <laughs> And it has an interesting interaction with the castle infiltration scene. Uh, at one point, Steve asks one of the key questions to critical thinking, what if you're wrong? 
right? Finally, the last two ideas are both tied to Edda's mission. First, the pragmatism of espionage meant that social conventions couldn't keep women out of the craft. And historically, that is how intelligence agencies developed female operatives. They would start as secretaries, but maintain that station only in name as they acted as full-on agents. I'll put links in the show notes. Second, I support Edda's mission as a bonus for home release rather than a mid-credit scene, primarily because it preserves Diana's emotional arc leaving the theater. The film makes it ambiguous how World War I affects Diana, but we leave the theater seeing her triumphant return to acting in the light as Wonder Woman. If Edda's mission was the last thing that we saw, it would act as a reminder that Diana departed and wasn't around to participate or assist in their adventures. While World War I is completely sufficient to explain Diana's absence, that doesn't mean that it has to preclude stories set before BVS. I'd like the next movie to move on to modern times to show off the seasoned and matured Wonder Woman. But in the course of my spy research, I've started to warm to the Cold War. It would be interesting to see Diana try to honor Steve by taking on his profession, and to see the effects that that has on her character. How can you be the spirit of truth if the central pillar of your profession is lying? How can you be a bridge between mankind's understanding when being a spy demands that you stand with one nation against another? What do you believe when spies deal in deception and disinformation? And I find these kinds of questions intriguing, but I'm not sure if the broader fan base wants to see anything but a sterling Wonder Woman. Still, being a secret agent is something that exists in Wonder Woman tradition, and where better to explore that than the Cold War, which was such a polarized period and an especially intense era of espionage. To provide some context, peak intelligence spending was $71 billion, and that's more than the present-day budget of every military on Earth, except the United States and China. In other words, the amount that we spent on intelligence alone is more than what any country spends on its entire military today, with those two exceptions aside. It was just a few years ago, I testified in front of Congress, and the budget was about $42 billion a year. Now we're looking in fiscal year 2012 at over $53 billion a year going to the intelligence community. And according to data that is publicly available, it appears that almost 70% of that is going to contractors. So we have about $37 billion that are going to intelligence contractors. You know, that's a lot of money and it's, uh, it is quite a shock to people that we don't have as many government employees that are running around doing all this spying that it's mainly contractors. Now, today's intelligence spending is down, but it's still higher than all of Canada's military spending. And just for a little perspective on the growth of the U.S. intelligence community, there are over 15 U.S. intelligence agencies in operation today, but Superman predates all but two of them, the Navy and the Coast Guard branches, if you were wondering. So, if you couldn't tell, I've left Wonder Woman and the Cold War, and I've moved on to modern times to talk about our clandestine present in Batman v Superman. As visual effects supervisor DJ put it, BVS is, quote, a long-running political thriller that just happens to have superheroes in it, end quote. The film is absolutely steeped in spycraft and intelligence topics. Lex says, knowledge is power a sentiment that's found throughout the ages, but that specific saying is oft attributed to Sir Francis Bacon, who, among his many accomplishments, was also a part of the Essex Intelligence Network, an Elizabethan foreign spy service of sorts. 
Lois meets clandestinely with Secretary Swanwick, sharing off-the-record classified information after initially dismissing her efforts as inventing a tinfoil hat conspiracy. We have underground fighting, military encryption, weapon smuggling, black markets, and the Sultan of Hajar, Lex campaign of disinformation, puppet theater politics, corporate espionage, contract killing, and data security, betrayals and infiltrations, Alfred mines the gadgetry as cue to Bruce's bond, and speaking of which, Bond's signature ride, the Aston Martin, makes an appearance when he goes to the gala. <laughs> and this isn't even bringing KG Beast into it or Nairobi, which is literally a CIA op gone wrong. <laughs> Those give us Russian spies, mercs or contractors, drones, insurgency, terrorism, and proxy war, spec ops, black ops, a false flag operation, betrayal, disinformation, surveillance, armed drones, and analysis by the CIA that's classified. Seriously, you put the superheroes aside and it's practically a spy film. We could spend an entire episode on any one of those espionage topics, but let's just focus on Nairobi and drones for now. A little context for this scene, it's following a historical trend. In warfare, tools of intelligence are always eventually weaponized. The mounted scout becomes the cavalry. Air intelligence eventually becomes air superiority. Spies are made into assassins. Cyber intelligence has become cyber warfare. Drones for reconnaissance and surveillance are armed and drone warfare begins. So it shouldn't be at all surprising that the intelligence agencies who wield these tools are also weaponized and given war-making capability. The CIA and the military have been transformed in ways that have blurred the boundaries between them. The shape of the new military intelligence complex is the subject of Mark Mazzetti's new book, The Way of the Knife. He writes, the CIA is no longer a traditional espionage service devoted to stealing the secrets of foreign governments. The CIA has become a killing machine, an organization consumed with manhunting. Meanwhile, the American military has commando teams running spying missions that Washington would never have dreamed of before 9-11. These changes are connected to the shadow wars America is fighting, pursuing its enemies with drones and special operations troops. Mazzetti is a Pulitzer Prize-winning national security correspondent for The New York Times. So one of the basic premises of your book is that the CIA has become more like the military and the military has become more like the CIA. Give us an example. The CIA was given this lethal authority to go out and hunt al-Qaeda operatives, capture or kill them. For several decades, the CIA had gotten out of the killing business. After the revelations of the Church Committee of the 1970s that talked about attempts to kill Castro and other world leaders, a whole generation of CIA officers came through the ranks thinking that the real mission they should be doing is espionage, not hunting and killing. In the years since they got this lethal authority, they've been doing a whole lot of manhunting and killing. So it really has changed the agency in many ways into this paramilitary organization, less a sort of classic espionage service. On the other hand, the Pentagon has become more like the CIA because there were restrictions about where soldiers could go. They couldn't go beyond declared war zones. And so a lot of those authorities were expanded. And so you have soldiers going into the dark corners of the world that are not traditional places where soldiers go, and they're doing sort of espionage missions. So there's been this sort of convergence in the mission. Of course, weaponizing a horseback rider or aircraft in war is a different dynamic than weaponizing spies or espionage in secret. Without secrecy, spies are irrelevant. But with secrecy comes invisibility to 
accountability and a powerful potential for corruption or abuse. Think about it. It might have something to do with our desire for power, which seems to be at the root of man's continuing quest for invisibility. I mean, we have stories going all the way back to antiquity that point to the dark side of going invisible. There are all kinds of myths and folk legends that warn about the corrupting power of invisibility and how it can lead even the most pure of heart heroes into recklessness or voyeurism. And Well, these commonalities between fables from different cultures, in this case, they seem to suggest that we all know invisibility is a power that we probably shouldn't have. And, you know, it doesn't stop us from wanting it, though. And in fact, the top two superpowers that people always cite as the ones they'd most like to have are the ability to fly and the power to turn invisible. Both of those provide the user a crazy amount of freedom. And maybe that's why we find them appealing. But in keeping with the shady side of invisibility we've been talking about, there might be another explanation. There is some speculation about what the choice between flight and invisibility says about a person. William Berry, who's this psychotherapist and professor at Florida International University, he suggests that people who opt to go invisible are embracing their dark side. So this is the side of your psyche where all your most shameful thoughts and desires dwell. According to Barry, quote, many of those who choose invisibility do so to hear what others say about them when they aren't around or to spy on others or to procure things that they don't have the money to pay for. It's easy to see how this relates to the dark side. Yeah, it really is, especially when you compare it to choosing flight. It doesn't seem to have any of the darker edge. Right. And, you know, Barry found that people who choose power of flight generally see it as a way to add excitement or fulfillment to their lives, maybe rescuing people from burning buildings or just zipping across the world to have dinner in Italy or, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. Keep those ideas in mind as we go through the Nairobi incident. Let's start with Agent Talon. When he's offered a Coke, note that it bears the Pakistani label in Arabic. The Egyptian and Moroccan labels are also in Arabic, but slightly different. And you may recall that originally the film was going to shoot on location in Morocco. And accordingly, they're speaking the Berber languages of the Tuareg, rather than, say, Swahili or Arabic. Later, Agent Talon shows that he's able to speak and understand their language, that linguistic ability a common requirement for spies. I'm going to keep referring to him as Agent Talon because it's uncertain whether Jimmy Olsen was always a spy or whether the name is simply a cover identity. According to Jason Matthews, a 30-year veteran of the CIA, We do not use journalists undercover at all. We are constrained from that. Not Um, in years. We used to. Yeah, we found that journalists really didn't have the skills that we were looking for. (laughs) In fact, it's the CIA's policy to disallow the use of journalists, clergy, or Peace Corps workers in covert operations or as cover for CIA agents. Congress made it illegal in the 90s. The CIA might try to thread the needle by alleging that Agent Talon was merely a photographer and not a journalist, but that clearly undermines the spirit of the policy. However, there is an exception to the policy where the director of central intelligence determines that the situation is serious enough to grant a waiver. That means that either this entire operation was authorized at the highest possible level, or it's in violation of the agency's principles, which would create a storm of controversy if revealed. Or perhaps it's a little bit of both, with some willful ignorance on the part of the director. Given the line, men of power obey neither policy nor principle, Miss Lane, I'm inclined to believe the film is suggesting the latter. This helps explain why the CIA doesn't clear Superman, and why it seems that Lois isn't called as a witness with respect to Nairomi, and why Lois doesn't immediately report on it. If indeed the CIA was using journalists for cover, Lois needs more concrete proof to bring accountability and change. Reporting otherwise just endangers journalists while the CIA denies the truth. 
And this isn't spy fantasy. From recent hearings, we know, in fact, there have been failures to observe this policy strictly, and journalists have been accused of espionage overseas. Again, invisibility and power are giving rise to issues of accountability. In any case, Lois is dealing with a spy, and reviewing their introduction in this light is interesting. Heron has trouble at the border, and we can only imagine how that might have been manufactured by the CIA. And then note how Agent Talon tries to extract information out of Lois. Lois. So, how'd you land it? This is like pioneer stuff. Amajog's never given an interview. He's buttering her up, trying to play her ego, hoping she gives up her source, means, or methods so that they don't have to use her in the future. Without knowing he's a spy, this dialogue seems like completely inconsequential small talk. Just a guy trying to build rapport. And Lois doesn't give him the time of day, which seems cold in the moment, but it's calculated discipline if you think about it. Even if you're not dealing with spies and secret agents, running your mouth just so you can feel a little more comfortable with somebody, risks giving up details which could expose your informants or jeopardize their source. Something you say could get spread a few conversations later and you end up costing someone their life. So it may seem rude to shut Jimmy down, but it's what Lois has to do to keep from spilling how she got here. There's a little bit of wordplay when Agent Talon protests, you just exposed, about his film to Kanaizev, who is about to expose him as a spy by revealing revealing a piece of true spy tech with flashing lights for the sake of the audience. Agent Talon is killed, and we see the scene via red-tinted drone surveillance feed, and again, for the sake of the audience, the display is colorized in a way that we associate with infrared vision, even if the actual displays look different. From the thermal footage, it's evident that the CIA knows how Agent Talon died, and it's all but certain that they continued surveillance. So in all probability, they know exactly how the rebels actually died, and they probably have the surveillance footage to boot, which they don't use to exonerate Superman because it implicates their own illegal activities in a conflict where America has publicly proclaimed its neutrality. Imagine the potential embarrassment or blow to American credibility. President Obama's recent announcement that the CIA had accidentally killed an American and an Italian civilian in an operation in Pakistan was absolutely devastating. I think for the reputation of the CIA, for more than a decade now, the CIA has built this identity around itself of these precise strikes where it always knows what it's doing, where it limits the risk to civilians. And what we actually found out was that they'd had a building under observation for weeks and they didn't know who was inside. It's a sign of of how damaging to US foreign policy that is, that the president himself had to stand up and make that announcement. I think we haven't seen such a blow to the CIA's credibility in some years in the drone campaign. And even now, weeks afterwards, there are still ripples coming out from that pressure on the CIA to be more open about who it's killed. So very damaging for the US. As was mentioned earlier, with giving intelligence agencies war-making capability, we see that drone deployment is by civilian intelligence. These aren't military officers in uniform, but CIA spooks in ordinary white-collared clothing. An armed drone is a remotely piloted aircraft. It means that there's nobody in it. The operator is usually thousands of miles away, controlling by joystick, by computer. But there's more to it. There's a whole intelligence aspect that goes with that. So in a whole other building, 
building, and possibly even another state, will have analysts poring over the material as it's being fed in real time, talking to the operators. And all of that information comes together and enables the drone to strike immediately, to kill. They inform Python on the ground of Agent Talon's status. Talon's down, sir. Python, we have lost our asset on the ground. Repeat, we have lost our asset on the ground. There's still a civilian in the compound. We'll extract her. Negative. RPA to engage. Stand down and get black. Well, there'll be friendlies in the blast zone, so call off the goddamn drone. Stand down is an order. Okay, so a little translation. Python is probably sheep-dipped spec ops. What do you mean by sheep-dipped? Well, sheep-dipped, it's in an instant you become a CIA officer. You're a Navy SEAL, and for this mission, you become a CIA operative under covert action authority. And it's a bureaucratic trick that allows you to operate in places where you wouldn't normally operate. And we saw this most famously when a team of Navy SEALs went deep into Pakistan and killed Osama bin Laden, and they were acting under CIA authority. So Python is CIA for the purposes of this mission, but not historically CIA, which is why there's a different sense of priority or conscience, looking to extract Lois rather than cover up the act. When the CIA analyst says negative RPA to engage, he's saying, don't try to rescue Lois. Our remote piloted aircraft, our drone, is going to take them out. When he says get black, he means go covert in this unauthorized mission. And he says that's an order, which is ironic, which again, some other time we have to talk about a authority and rebellion because these films are thick with it. I should quickly point out that if Talon wasn't blown, Python was still probably there to take out General Amajog at night after Lois had left. After all, if this were just observe and report, why engage the drone? The worry is that with Talon blown, the rebels would scatter to the winds and the CIA would miss their shot at killing the general, which means that the mission was always to assassinate him. This is essentially an ignoble version of Operation Neptune Spear, or the CIA-led JSOC mission to kill Osama bin Laden. We don't have time to get into the reasons why you send in spec ops when you could use a drone. I'll put links in the show notes. Turning to the contractors turning on the general... Note that it doesn't happen until the drone is inbound. Why the delay? When Kanaizev says quickly he's coming, how does he know? Well, he has an earbud in, and eventually we'll see how that works with Bruce and Alfred. And eventually we'll learn that Lex is pulling all the strings, likely feeding him all the intel. Most likely, Lex has the ability to track Superman to some degree. After all, we know that the military can do it when they nuke him. Just as we've discussed ways that Superman can avoid that detection, or reasons the military would force go it. Regardless, Lex could too, and that's why he can throw Lois off a building with confidence and why he doesn't need to monitor the fight with Batman directly. So if Lex is going to have Knaizev kill the rebels anyway, why wait? It's partially because he wants the CIA to commit to a compromising course of action. Agent Talon dies and they can and will just deny. But once you send a drone attack, Superman knows he's at odds with the US government, and this may account for much of Superman's silence after Nairobi. It was an American operation, but they never come out to clear him, even quietly behind closed doors. Superman doesn't put himself in a place to judge the CIA, and he considers the collateral consequences of calling them out, and a part of him hopes that the system will work itself out. When the senators start asking questions, maybe the director of the CIA or the chair of the intelligence committee takes that congressperson aside and says, it's confidential, but we know Superman was innocent. I mean, Secretary Swanwick has that ability, but it's only after Superman is let down that he decides to speak. 
And that's because Lex set up a compromising situation for the CIA. After all, what's the follow-up question if you say Superman's innocent? How do you know? The CIA can't tell Congress it was where it wasn't supposed to be without inviting investigation. We get our first shot of the drone and see that it's a Reaper, not a Predator. Basically a bigger, badder drone. Two inbound mics is the phonetic military alphabet. Mics for the letter M, meaning minutes. So he's saying it'll be there in two minutes. Link's been hit. By what? The CIA analyst is incredulous that their drone could have been shot down because he's become accustomed to their sense of complete untouchable invincibility, a situation that the locals have to live with, as the general says, the drones that pass over our heads at night. See, current drone technology is highly effective only when there's a great disparity of power. Drones are very effective in environments in which they're not contested, where they can't be shot down. They're not very good at surviving in contested airspace with anti-aircraft weapons and so on. They're slow, they're ponderous. Nations with military might simply shoot down drones, demand or deter their disuse. Nations with economic clout threaten sanctions or political reprisal. Only when they can't fight back with conventional or diplomatic means is a drone effective. If you lured that power over them, might their frustrations make themselves known in other ways? ways. Drones are risk-free as far as those of us who have armed drones are concerned. None of our pilots, none of our operators are at risk over the battlefield anymore. But I don't think it's really risk-free. I think it's risk-displaced. And what my research shows, and others have shown as well, is that when terror groups, when militant groups can't lash out at those attacking them, they tend to take out their fury on those closer to home, even on civilian populations. So while from the safety of our wars, we tend to think of these as risk-free conflicts, it's simply risk displacement. And there is a challenge for us that the drones may be making the world a less safe place simply because we're becoming more tolerant of getting involved in wars. If our politicians and generals think that these wars are risk-free, will they commit us more often to these wars, which might make the world a less safe place? Think about that applied to Superman. If he lords his power over mankind in a manner where we feel powerless to respond directly, how else might we harm him? Lex goes after what Superman cares about. Lois, Martha, the symbol of hope, that superheroes represent justice. Lex attacks Superman's reputation. But the one thing we haven't really talked about is the international effect here. The United States is hugely unpopular globally. The Pew Foundation has polled over many years now. The targeted killing of people beyond the hot battlefield by the United States is proving almost as unpopular as the torture program were back in the 2000s. So there's a cost, a reputational cost to the United States by these assassinations, which really needs to be factored in to do the drones work. And even if physically immune to harm, there's the emotional toll. This idea that these men and women were somehow distanced from the battlefield, were cold and remote from the killing that they were doing. And I spoke to many operators and pilots, and what really came across was their humanity, actually. They were very passionate about about their work and they were sometimes quite damaged by some of the things they'd had to do. Links in the show notes for more on drones. The film is showing us that the same kind of questions raised by the Superman are already being discussed and debated today in arenas like drone warfare, and many of the responses, solutions, and discussions addressing drones can be applied to Superman and his metahuman ilk. We've already discussed terrorism and reputation, and another counter for drones is being rich. If you're rich, you can afford the tech it takes to shoot them down. This is Batman's solution to solving Superman. He doesn't take hostages. He doesn't go after the secret identity. He doesn't campaign against Superman's reputation. Instead,
Instead, he has the money to directly negate Superman's advantages. He's able to get his hands onto Kryptonite and fight Superman. Another possibility is more drones. If everybody has drones, it doesn't so much solve the issue, but it diffuses the criticism. Currently, only the United States uses drone warfare this way, drawing international criticism. Similarly, much of the debate about superheroes is salient only when Superman is the only one of those flying up there. After the public debut of the Justice League, focusing criticism on Superman would be misplaced with other metahumans out there. Another similar response is if there is a common enemy. While other nations are completely capable of building their own drone programs, they're content to let the US lead in this untested space because we're allies, or at least not at war with those other nations. So we tolerate the Justice League because they save us against Darkseid. The last three are self-evident, disuse, accountability, and ethical behavior, right? No one complains about drones or metahumans if they don't use their power, are accountable for what they do, or only do the ethical, moral, and right thing. Easier said than done, but the point is, after Justice League, we should naturally expect a new status quo with, with respect to superheroes rather than a return to how Superman was treated before. Hopefully, the League will establish a better reputation for truth and justice than the government has with Lois. After all, Lois needed the Canadians to get access to Ellesmere, and her eyewitness account was denied by the Pentagon. Later, she's kidnapped, interrogated, and threatened with treason, then offered up to the aliens with little resistance. The CIA endangers her by using her credentials as cover, which is against US law and CIA policy, and then don't come clean when Superman is framed for what happened in the desert. It appears that they put a gag out on her and Defense Secretary Swanwick. Senators go after the love of her life, and the president authorizes a nuclear strike where he's collateral. And she has a theory that the United States was double-dealing, claiming to support the elected government while arming the rebels. Some critics have mocked Lois's clandestine meetings with Swanwick as trying to force some noir onto the film. But she's acting with the prudence Steve Trevor should have shown in Wonder Woman, based on personal and practical experience. This is especially true in Washington, D.C., the spy capital of the world. Washington, D.C. is a spy capital of the world. There's not even a real close second. That's Vince Houghton. I'm the historian and curator of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. We did the math. We actually took the estimated number of foreign officers in D.C. and divided it by the square mileage of D.C. And we came up with a number that says you're statistically guaranteed to be within 200 feet of an officer of a foreign government at any one point in D.C. So if you walk to a street corner and look all four ways, you're probably looking at a foreign spy. And note that Swanwick sharing classified information isn't completely abnormal. It's my belief that the obsession with secrecy is more of a threat to national security than lacks secrecy. Because everything has been classified secret and top secret, people within the agency no longer take it seriously. Its credibility is eroded. And what happens is that individual case officers make their own decisions. They say, well, it's classified, but it shouldn't be classified at this level. Or it's classified, but it won't hurt if I share this with someone. So what happens is someone like me comes along, and I'm the beneficiary of that obsession with secrecy. Because many of those people who helped me should not have helped me under the rule of the CIA, but they took it upon themselves to make the judgment about what should and should not be classified.
classified. This is a direct result of the obsession with secrecy. John Deutsch took enormously sensitive materials and put them on an unsecured home computer, and that is reflective of a lack of respect for the security system. Some of the spies that you mentioned, part of their defense at times was, yes, I gave the enemy classified materials, but it was classified but shouldn't have been classified. It did no serious harm. Well, that opens the door to this kind of individual decision-making, which is truly a threat to national security. So Lois was being smart, and she's being deliberate in her intelligence-gathering observation and analysis. Lois draws connections because she did the legwork, pounded the pavement, and dug for snakes, something that she knows worries Clark, theory of mind, and why she keeps her investigations from him. I bring all of this up because despite all of this, Lois isn't the jaded cynic that she has every excuse to be. Instead, stuff like this still shocks you. She has a conscience, hopes, and expectations of the world. She's the one to touch Superman's shield and say, this means something. How does Lois not give in to despair and condemnation? How does Clark make his way back down from the mountain? You make the world small. And remember, if our government is of the people and by the people, and if people are flawed, then our government will be flawed. George Takei talks about why his father wouldn't condemn America, even after being interned unjustly. We had many, many conversations, and what I got from them was my father's wisdom. He was the one that suffered the most under those conditions of imprisonment, and yet he understood American democracy. He told me that our democracy is a people's democracy, and it can be as great as the people can be, but it is also as fallible as people are. He told me that American democracy is vitally dependent on good people who cherish the ideals of our system and actively engage in the process of making our democracy work. They are my heroes and my father is my hero who understood democracy and guided me through it. They gave me a legacy and with that legacy comes a responsibility and I am dedicated to making my country and even better America. The recognition of our constant failings and bright potential creates a civic responsibility to improve society, not to damn it as a lost cause or pretend that it's perfect and beyond reproach. It's one of the reasons challenging films are compelling and why complete escapism carries risk. People who avoid information rationally know that they would be better off if they fully understood the bad news. But deep in the brain, there are rules that tell us to avoid things that are unpleasant painful, or scary. We shut out the news we'd rather not hear. Not that escapism is all bad either. As we've repeated again and again on this show, there's often duality, two sides, different viewpoints, and choice. For example, being in intelligence can give you perspective. To see things from outside your culture and to see another's culture up close. This gives you a more open and flexible mind to see grays instead of absolutes. However, taken to an extreme, it can result in the loss of one's moral compass. As with military pragmatists, or career spies, there's a strong tendency towards the ends justifying the means, putting aside noble principles and lofty ethics in the name of more immediate interests. And that's the path walked by the worst of the worst. 
In Suicide Squad, the first words we see in the film is Black Sight, a description of the setting and a military term of art describing a location where unacknowledged activities occur. In this case, we're talking about an analog to secret CIA prisons and detention centers. So a Black Sight is a secret prison set up by the CIA overseas for interrogating terrorism suspects. There were a handful of these that were put up after the 9-11 attacks. And this is where the CIA would take prisoners basically off the grid. And this is where suspects like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was supposedly the architect of the 9-11 attacks, was waterboarded and subjected to other brutal interrogation measures. When the program was exposed and the Washington Post played an important role in publicly revealing the existence of these black sites, there were huge repercussions. There were new laws that were passed to ban this sort of activity. And so there was a big global fallout from this activity. So what exactly is a black site? It allowed the CIA to set up secret foreign prisons for purposes of detainment and, quote, enhanced interrogation. At least 53 countries were involved in the CIA's torture program, despite President Barack Obama's 2009 reversal on torture and unlawful extradition, black sites are reportedly still in use around the world. Bell Rev points us to Guantanamo Bay, Gitmo. Inmates were detained indefinitely without trial and treated in ways that breach basic human rights. Former U.S. Naval Intelligence Officer Malcolm Nance used to train American servicemen how to withstand torture. In the 1990s, Malcolm Nance did research on waterboarding because it was a torture technique his compatriots might have to endure. But after 9-11, this work was turned upside down and became a how-to guide for CIA interrogators. I felt amazing shock that somebody would take a program like this and flip it on its head and use it again. What we actually teach in this, these programs were war crimes. Our moral compass was turned on its head to where we decided we would choose the techniques of totalitarian regimes and our former enemies. And that is just disgraceful. Universally condemned today, on paper, these black sites were created in the name of national security. It was alleged that the ability to hold people without due process or to subject them to torture through legal loopholes was necessary to contain would-be terrorists or get intel to keep America safe. The ticking time bomb rationale becomes a part of policy and public discourse despite largely existing as a fantasy. The utility we derive from our ethical compromise is more psychological than necessary. Why would they sanction torture if it didn't work? Torture works if what you want is to demonstrate power over a powerless person. It works if you're really angry and you want to make somebody suffer. It works if you want to see somebody very afraid of you and if you want to inflict pain. In other words, I think that especially in the theaters of war, you had an active war zone with a lot of people getting killed and getting hurt. It's especially an inflammatory environment for soldiers. That's one reason why you have to have absolute bans on torture. So torture works for those subsidiary goals, and I think that's one reason why it was deployed. If you want to do a little psychology here, I think we were, after 9-11, enraged, grief-stricken, felt violated and powerless, and we're in a lash-out mode. And I think the resort to torture was in part about national lashing out after 9-11, more than it was about it. Does that sound like anyone in these films? How about Batman's descent in BVS? So Suicide Squad is hopefully not so much the state of America's government, but a dark prophecy if we allow its intelligence community to be as unaccountable as it can be or may be in other parts of the world.
That lack of accountability allows Waller all sorts of atrocities from enslaving conscripted penal soldiers to killing all those FBI analysts without the clearance to be aware of her operation. She takes a certain expression and makes it literal. I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. I could tell you, but then I have to kill you. If I told you that, I'm afraid I'd have to kill you. Well, I could tell you, but I would have to kill you. I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. If I told you, I'd have to kill you. It's a symptom of the job. If you are a secret agent, you see your government at its worst, because the reason that every country has secret services is to do things they don't want to be known about. And that can make you awfully cynical. When agents go bad, their motivations can be captured by one of the letters in the mnemonic device, MICE, M-I-C-E. We go through a lot of study about what motivates people, and we have an acronym, which is M-I-C-E, MICE. Those are the four basic motivators of human nature. We all have those motivators. Everyone has a weakness. We all have weaknesses, and most of us have thought about it, but we kind of know what they are. In the intelligence community, there's a mnemonic for that, and it's MICE, M-I-C-E. It's money, ideology, compromise, or ego. And that's a really rudimentary way to break it down, but it actually works. It's an approach to what are the failings of the human population around the world? Where are they vulnerable? And those are areas, they're always going to be vulnerable in those areas. Various people will run out of money. Various people will have ego problems. If you need the information badly enough, you'll explore all of these areas to see if there's room for some leverage. Is it any wonder that an intelligence agent like Waller comes to believe in leverage as supreme? While it's meant to be used in an intelligence context, it can be used as a lens for any betrayal. Why did Diana decide to train against Hippolyta's express orders and wishes? Arguably, ego. She wanted to be an Amazon like everyone else she knows. Why did Antiope train her? Ideology. A belief that their duty was to prepare Diana for her destiny. Why does Superman go to fight Batman? He was coerced. Lex had leverage over him in the form of Martha's life. Why does Kahina proffer false testimony? Money. She's paid by Lex. Why then does she admit that she lies to Senator Finch? She was compromised. Lex is after her and she hopes to exchange her testimony for safety. And it's basically the same for Waller. At the end of Suicide Squad, Amanda Waller betrays her government by giving classified intelligence to Bruce Wayne in order to protect herself. Of course, humans and circumstances are more complex and nuanced than these four levers, but mice is a great starting point to ask what motivates a behavior. How does Waller get the intelligence that she trades away? She knows what she knows. She's obviously an intelligence officer, and if you think about it, if you start running down the logic trails of things and you have this Batman figure acting as a vigilante, and at this point in time he's been doing it for maybe 20 years, the intelligence services would absolutely figure out who this guy is and where he comes from. He'd put a freaking drone over Gotham City and just track the guy. Amanda Waller would somehow get this information. We address this in our Secret Identity episode, where we posit the position that the government on its face agrees not to investigate Superman's secret identity. But we also said that would not stop shadow elements from pursuing it. The information is not actionable because it draws its power from secrecy. And the containment is partially explained by the mid credit scene. If Waller is compromised and dependent upon Wayne's protection, 
protection, then any move to use the information would withdraw that protection. So we have a stalemate explaining their inaction for now. Suicide Squad also underscores the fact that as of Man of Steel, the government does not know Clark's identity. In other words, while Waller knows who Wayne is at some point during his 20-year career, no one comes knocking on the Kent's door when Zod threatens the entire world, when the FBI snatches up Lois Lane, or when General Swanwick says, now you've revealed your identity to Miss Lane over there, why won't you do the same with us? If the government at large knew, or if someone inside knew, that the fate of the planet rested in revealing this knowledge, it's unlikely that they would have held it back then. And this indicates that Jonathan Kent raised Clark to keep his secret better than Batman. <laughs> so, speaking of Clark's upbringing, let's turn to Man of Steel. We're going to pick up our commentary with the bullying flashback Clark has in the church. There's loads that I want to say even about the decision to go to church, but it has to be another time. For context, within this scene, it's after the bus rescue, after Clark has saved Pete, and after Pete's mother reveals that everyone is talking about it. As we enter into the flashback, we hear the radio commentator ask, how could he have remained hidden from us for so long? The scene shows us that Clark grew up undercover, something that sets him apart from the Trinity. Both Bruce and Diana grew up privileged and proud. Clark grew up humble in means and manners. And this flashback shows us a tough moment when Clark kept his secret, but many detractors think that it came at the cost of Jonathan's character. That he's portrayed as callous, uncompassionate, and uncaring by keeping Clark contained when he could otherwise act. They're quick to point to Wonder Woman. I don't think want is the word. I guess I gotta try. My father told me once he said, if you see something wrong happening in the world, you can either do nothing or you can do something. And I already tried nothing. And I don't disagree with what Steve's saying. I disagree with detractors reducing complex, nuanced principles to soundbite slogans expressed as absolutes. We can see from Steve's own actions and belief that doing something doesn't always mean acting immediately, saving everyone, or stopping all ills in front of you. More directly, doing something is literally that. Doing something to address wrong in the world. Not doing everything to address every wrong that you see. For Steve, that meant being a spy. And in most cases, that meant maintaining cover so that he could observe and report. He couldn't function as a spy if he intervened against every ill in front of him while undercover. And indeed, that's exactly how his cover ends in the beginning. Nevertheless, it only furthers the point that these are flexible principles. Steve decided to act on that occasion. But later, he pushes Diana forwards. He says, we have to stay on mission. And when she retorts, so what? We do nothing? He says, no, we are doing something. Steve is keeping the mission in mind, maintaining perspective, and not allowing mission creep to detract from those priorities. And following through with that is doing something. Doing something can mean staying on mission. It can mean being, listening, observing, deciding, growing, waiting, or self-control. Anyone who has tried to change, to kick a habit, resist temptation, or exercise self-control, you know that you are absolutely doing something that's hard, takes effort, willpower, energy, and thoughtfulness, even if, from the outside looking in, you could be accused of doing nothing. Consider this story using a decision-making strategy from a spy's guide 
to thinking. How to think like a spy. It comes from John Braddock, and he told us a story about when he was a case officer in the CIA. He was in an undisclosed country. John Braddock was wearing a trench coat. Yes, for real, no a trench joke, coat. real trench coat. John's on his way to meet a source. And so he heads to a subway stop, gets onto a train, and walks to the back of the car. So John's looking down at his phone. He's checking to see if his source has left a message for him. And that's when he hears it. Let me see your phone. It was pretty clear that let me see your phone meant give me your phone. John looks up, and there's a guy standing over him. His clothes are shabby. He's disheveled. John puts the phone back into his pocket before the guy can grab it. I stand up to face him, try to move past him. He do, he moves to block me. John notices the guy's hands are suddenly moving towards him. I look down. And bam. The guy headbutts John. I fall backwards, feel sticky blood streaming down my face, and he's standing over me. He starts laughing like this crazy howl kind of laugh. All right, so maybe what you just heard sounds like John Braddock getting caught off guard and then getting beaten up. But there is a tip in there. If you could look inside John's head, he is actually using a structured system of thinking. John calls it the D-A-D-A loop. It's an acronym. Starts with gathering data. Data feeds into analysis, which feeds into a decision, which feeds into an action. D-A-D-A. Data, analysis, decision, action, repeat. That's what makes it a loop. You do it over and over. And it's based on a similar loop invented by a famous military strategist. And it's a way to stay focused, to slow down a stressful situation and really see what's happening. So if I were being attacked on a train, I would be thinking of some big situation-ending actions I could take. Run away, throw a punch, scream. But John is not thinking that way. So again, he's in that train car, sitting down, pulls out his phone, and he hears that voice. Let me see your phone. What's your next thought? Does he know I'm a spy? That would be the worst case scenario. This is an enemy spy, an assassin even. So John rapidly does this loop. He goes to find the things that he needs to answer that question. Because too much data is a bad thing. So he scans the car and something catches his eye on the train. There was a camera in the roof of the carriage... Spies hate surveillance cameras. If you're going to confront another spy, kill him, steal his phone, very unlikely you'd do it while a camera's rolling. John also notices something about the attacker himself. His eyes are dancing a little bit. He's not focused. He doesn't look prepared for this moment. Data collected, analysis done. This is not a spy trying to kill John and steal his phone. This is probably a mugger on drugs. It's still a very bad situation because John cannot afford to lose a cell phone that might have sensitive information on it. All right, so data and analysis, but John still hasn't taken an action yet. And there is sort of an obvious one he could take. He has had extensive training. He could probably handle a drugged up mugger without too much trouble. But if he showed up in surveillance camera footage fighting like he is James Bond or Jason Bourne, that is very bad for the bigger game he's playing, for trying to stay undercover in a foreign country. And so this is where life as a spy starts to look very different from the movies because John does not knock his attacker out. He doesn't pull out some crazy weapon, some crazy gadget. The action that his meticulous decision-making process led him to in that moment was this. I put my phone in my pocket and I stood up. He stood up. He was sitting and then he was not sitting. Does that even count as an action? It is incredibly boring action, but in a very tiny way, it does change the situation. And then we're face to face. He's standing and they're face to face. If you are really good at this thought loop, you can see these almost imperceptible changes in a situation. So now John's immediately back at the start, gathering data. He observes the mugger's reaction to his bold move of standing up. The 
mugger is unfazed, now John knows that this isn't going to intimidate the guy. And he has another decision to make, another action to take. Again, small. I move to the side. He moves to the side to block me. The mugger's committed to the conflict, not going to let John run away or de-escalate. And now John sees the mugger's hands moving towards him. I look down. The mugger headbutts John, laughs, laughs like a supervillain, and walks away. Now, John did not exactly choose to get headbutted and bleed all over his nice trench coat and shirt, but he did choose over and over not to act, or at least not to overreact. And eventually, a solution did present itself. For whatever reason, the mugger walked away without the phone. And in this case, that is what winning looks like. It's not some big act of courage. It's not even blocking an incoming headbutt. It's seeing what's important and sometimes losing the small game to win the big one. So spy tip number one, when something unexpected happens and you feel yourself jumping to take a big action, remember the loop. Do the loop. Dada. Data, analysis, decision, action, repeat. Helps you win the more important game. Agent Braddock thought through the long-term consequences of his choices, his duty, his larger goals. He stayed on mission and chose not to fight. So how did Clark do? Come on, Kent. Come on, fight back! Get up, Kent! So is that it? Is that all you've got? Come on, Kent. Come on! Clark is ripped out of his dad's truck, pushed to the ground and surrounded by bystanders letting this happen. Kenny tries to provoke him to fight, feigns a punch, and challenges his ego. We know Clark could retaliate. Heat vision, super strength, durability, Clark doesn't even have to throw a punch. He could just stand there and let Kenny ruin his hands hitting him. And if Clark just uses a little strength, he can stand his ground or win without any supernatural suspicion. But Jonathan taught Clark well, and he refuses to toy with that temptation. Clark knows that he doesn't have that kind of self-control right now. He could do serious damage. And even if he kept under control, Kenny walking away wounded would work its way into the rumors running around town about him. Mrs. Ross might find it a little less divine if Kenny gets a fat lip, black eye, or a broken fist. In this case, Clark doesn't even stand to give Kenny a punching bag. Did it hurt you? You know they can't. It's not what I meant. I meant are you all right? I wanted to hit that kid. I wanted to hit him so bad. I know you did. I mean, part of me even wanted you to, but then what? Make you feel any better? You just have to decide what kind of man you want to grow up to be, Clark, because whoever that man is, good character or bad, he's, he's going to change the world. This isn't to say that Clark is cold and calculating. He isn't. He's upset. His blood is running hot. He crushed that fence post. And when Jonathan asks, did they hurt you? He gives a smart remark. You know they can't. And that is such truthful human writing. When we're hurt and upset, we almost instinctively go out of our way to misunderstand others. If Clark knows Jonathan knows that, then he knows that's not what Jonathan meant. But hurt people hurt people. And it's a small and petty slight, but he's critical of Jonathan's phrasing because he's upset. It's a way of asserting his supposed invulnerability to act tough and call out an iota of resentment at Jonathan that he knows Clark didn't have to suffer that indignity. It's a line and a performance packed with meaning, turmoil, and attack. Yet Jonathan is patient, lets it slide, and rephrases. But before we get into that though, I want to say that even the silent actions up to this point speak volumes about Clark's upbringing. To the extent that I've described the above as an attack, I'm sure you could imagine 
far worse from a bullied kid. Clark could curse Jonathan for dragging him out to Sullivan's when he could have been reading at home. Clark could cry. Why did he have to hide? Why did he have to hold back? They wouldn't mess with him if they knew. Clark could refuse to talk and angrily demand to be taken home in silence. Clark could demand to know why Jonathan didn't intervene sooner. Why weren't you there watching? Why didn't you stop them? All of these would be understandable teenaged responses for an average kid. But Jonathan and Martha raised Clark to a higher standard. And it shows in how Clark opens up to his father, really listens to him, and doesn't misplace his feelings onto his parent like so many kids may do when they don't know any better. Clark trusts Jonathan. And that trust is mutual. As we see in the silent action, Jonathan eventually sees what's going on. And he doesn't scream and yell, run at them, or chase them down. He doesn't drag them back by the ear to apologize to Clark, and he doesn't threaten to call their parents. Moreover, if Jonathan didn't trust Clark, he might have panicked, hoping to protect the bullies from Clark. Instead, Jonathan demonstrates his trust in Clark by giving him enough space to make his choices. There's risk in that. What if Clark did lose his temper, strike out, or retaliate? But because Jonathan gave Clark space to grow, Clark learns a lot in a short span. Clark learns that he still has a temper that's on the edge of being out of control. He crushed that pipe. But he also learns that he can control himself, that he can trust himself to do the right thing. He learns that doing the right thing can feel awful in the moment. He learns that Pete was weak to peer pressure, but was sorry and wants to do the right thing. That maybe he will have a friend in Pete so that they don't have to feel awful or sorry alone. That doing the right thing may take time to come back around. Finally, he learns that his father trusts him. Clark wouldn't have learned all those lessons if Jonathan had rushed in to rescue him. And we know Jonathan had to resist doing that. When he sees what's going on, we find out that he's upset too. He admits it later. But you wouldn't know it from how he initially approaches Clark so stoically. There are many parents who would unintentionally hijack that moment to make it about their emotions and outrage, their fears and concerns, getting out everything that they're feeling before the kids can even say a word. But instead, we see where Clark's self-control comes from. Jonathan holds in his own emotions and focuses on Clark's well-being first. This isn't about me. This is about my son. Are you all right? This is about Clark's feelings, his physicality already taken off the table. Clark, raised right at this point, is done pouting, done pretending to be tough, done putting up walls. His emotions and honesty comes pouring out. On the verge of tears, his voice cracking, he admits his feelings. And again, this is proof of their relationship that Clark feels safe to share all of this with his dad. It is easy for bullied kids to feel ashamed so that they don't turn to their parents. But here, Clark is admitting feelings feelings that the Kents must have taught him all his life not to act on, but they must have done it right because Clark can distinguish the feeling from the act to be not ashamed of sharing the feeling as part of being able to control the act. If Clark thought Jonathan would be disappointed in him, he might have hid how he felt, but this is an open and honest relationship, as proven by how Jonathan replies. Jonathan admits a part of him wanted to see Clark fight back, wanting revenge to hit back. It's arguably a fault that some parents would want to hide. You can imagine another parent pretending to be perfect and scolding Clark for his feelings, but that isn't this relationship. It's very much a relationship founded on truth 
and honesty, and that means the reality of their feelings, especially when it shows that you feel the same impulse to do the wrong thing. That admission forges empathy, connection, and immediate healing for Clark. Seconds ago, he was on the verge of tears, but now he feels heard, he feels understood, he feels loved. Jonathan doesn't scold Clark. He doesn't tell him what to do. He asks Clark to think it through. Jonathan continues to teach Clark in a Socratic way, always artfully presenting choices and trusting Clark to make the right ones. He doesn't tell Clark what kind of man he will be. He knows that, ultimately, that decision lies within Clark's heart, and it's his choice to make. When parents have so much power over their kids, it can be extremely difficult to transition into acknowledging that and trying not to exert any remaining power against the will of the maturing child. Doesn't matter if your kid is superpowered or if you're God Almighty, no one can force the heart of another. So instead, Jonathan cultivates a kid capable of consistently making the right choices because he's going to change the world. Jonathan affirms the free will choice. Why? As we've seen again and again in these films, authority doesn't always bind people, and we are all agents capable of autonomy, whether obedience, rebellion, or something in between. Secret agents and spies concretely illustrate the question. How do we make choices if we're not bound by authority? If you have the license to kill or the license to lawbreak, if you're outside the law, outside authority, secret and invisible to society, immune to repercussion, reprisal, or responsibility, what happens? then? Why does going undercover cost so many their souls? Why do spies turn and go rogue? We don't need espionage to know because in truth, none of us are bound by authority in our hearts. Only there do we choose, and that's something Jonathan saw right away, even without knowing that he'd pass away and even without knowing the extent of Clark's power. We never see Jonathan assert his power over Clark. Instead, he always tries to invite Clark into the conversation to choose to do the right thing on his own. Clark learns not to bully, not to exploit his power over others, to follow the true path of justice. Sound like a stretch? Well, if you've read Plato's Republic, as Clark was when all this went down, you might know where this is going. It's a story that's told in Plato's Republic. It's 3,000 years old. Standard dialogue in which Socrates asks how they'd respond to a hypothetical. A shepherd, he says, is out in the field and finds a ring. And he picks the ring up and poof, he's invisible. And so Socrates turns to his students and says, you had a ring like this, what would you do? Would you use it? And if you did, how would you use it? By the time it comes all the way around to Carmides, you know, one of Socrates' favorite students, the group has essentially acknowledged as this final student says that if you had the ring, you'd kill the king, marry the queen, and take over the kingdom. Right? Because you could. Socrates says, what do we learn from this? And the answers that come back are, of course, no one can be trusted. Right? All of the pupils say there's no way to ever really trust someone because if they can get away with something, they will. And Socrates says, in essence, no. What we've discovered is that it's only when you can do otherwise and do, right? When you have the power to to do great harm and elect not to, that's when trust is possible. Wisecrack's 8-bit philosophy elaborates. Plato tells us a story, a myth really, of a lowly shepherd who discovers a mysterious magic ring. He became invisible. He wasted no time seducing the queen, murdering the king and seizing power. Even though he committed a grave injustice, he certainly benefited, didn't he? Well, according to Plato, no. Despite now being infinitely richer and more powerful, Plato thinks the shepherd has 
not benefited from committing this injustice. But why? Surely it's good to gain some material wealth or social status. Does it really matter how it's achieved? But Plato doesn't think that injustice really is in one's best interest. In fact, just the opposite. You see, according to Plato, justice is inherently valuable. The just person will always be infinitely happier and thus richer than the unjust person. For Plato doesn't think that goodness is derived from material or social gain. Thinking that it is, is what the shepherd got wrong. Justice in the individual is the condition of a harmonious soul governed by reason. That's why the just individual will never commit injustices, whether she or he can get away with it or not. The just individual knows that committing unjust acts messes with his soul, and so also his happiness. The applicable allegory is clear. Gyges is human nature. The ring of invisibility is power. And together, the presumed result is injustice. With the power to be unaccountable, it is human nature to put self-interest over others to their harm and detriment. Yet Clark was raised differently. Early on, to be accountable to himself, because one day he will be before the world. It's as if raised with invisibility, but believing that he would one day fly to have planetary perspective where he can behold the entire world as one and be seen by the whole world. Jonathan and Martha gave Clark a spiritual destiny that one day he would be seen on the world stage. When the world finds out what you can do, it's going to change everything. The truth about you is beautiful. We knew that one day the whole world would see that. Good character or bad, you're going to change the world. Clark sincerely adopted and believed that. We know because of how he regarded the secret and power as solemn things tied to his soul. Others, like Gyges, could easily disavow that far-off future destiny as meaningless speculation. In the here and now, he is invisible, unaccountable, and powerful. He could live any way he wants, and the world may never know. Or if they do one day, so what? You know they can't hurt me. It was absolutely an option to become callous to corruption and to exploit his powers for gain. But that isn't what we see. What we see comes out of how he was raised. From the beginning, unlike Diana, Clark was raised with pragmatism and the fallibility of man and the reality requiring he keep his secret, even if the explanation came a little later. So Clark always had a clear picture of an imperfect world. He didn't come from Diana's paradise or Bruce's time before, and yet he was still raised to care deeply and sacrificially. There's more here at stake than just our lives, Clark, or the lives of those around us. All of these struggles and trials were meant as character building for the time promised. One day, you're going to think of them as a blessing. And when that day comes, you're going to have to make a choice. A choice of whether to stand proud in front of the human race or not. Early on, Clark decided and accepted, one day I'm going to stand proud before mankind. That was the mission, and his parents taught him to keep it. They taught him self-control and secrecy so he could restrain his powers and be among people. And they taught him mostly to be immune to mice, money, and material things. Martha says, it's only stuff, Clark. It can always be replaced. For 16 years, Clark lived out of a duffel bag as an itinerant worker. His powers and senses could have easily let him live large gambling, trading on insider information, etc. But Clark's aestheticism made none of that a draw. 
What about ideology? Clark wasn't going to fall for patriotic, religious, or political radicalism. Clark grew up in America's heartland, loving its people and culture, but also balanced with knowing the government could come and that people fear what they don't understand. Clark was raised with religion, so there's no hole to be filled by radical beliefs. Clark was also raised to think critically, to even challenge or question something as seemingly obvious as saving lives. Rather than certainty, Clark was raised with flexible principles, the Socratic what-if, responding with maybe, and always checking his perspective. Was he keeping the bigger picture in mind? Was he staying on mission towards his long-term spiritual destiny? Ego? What if I don't want my story to be told? Raised by a humble farmer, Clark is only too happy to let God take credit for the bus rescue. He doesn't show Kenny what he's got, and for 16 years, Clark never stuck around to claim glory or gratitude after saving people. Clark was content to be a cipher. Even as Superman, Clark never let any of the attention go to him as an individual personality, only to the symbol. Finally, coercion. Another way to say this is connection. If we look at the levers of mice, it's Clark's connections that keep him constant. Martha taught him materials don't matter much. In terms of ideology, we see Clark constantly consulting with others to check against himself. He values his connections, which keep him from falling prey to antisocial radicalism. Compare that to the relative isolation of Bruce or Lex, who didn't really bounce their ideas off others. In terms of ego, these connections keep him human and humble. And initially, Clark willfully gave up his connections every time he would supernaturally save someone, so as not to compromise the secret. However, Clark feels so connected to everyone such that he will always put the Superman in action to save if given the opportunity. And obviously, his connections to Lois and Martha is how Lex is ultimately able to coerce Clark into fighting. But while these make Clark vulnerable to influence, these are also the connections that give him his strength and integrity, and keep Clark from becoming an unaccountable tyrant. Clark is not incorruptible. We're shown how human he is when he tears up Ludlow's truck, when he's forced to kill Zod, when he's provoked to threaten Batman, and when we see him in the nightmare. However, he has been raised to be incredibly resistant to corruption. After Man of Steel, nothing stops Clark from returning to a life of invisible aid. But instead, he accepts that the Superman is a public entity, and so he makes Superman accountable to the public. Superman's deeds are seen, recorded, and reported. It would be so easy to leverage that towards lording his power over mankind. But like his father did with him, Clark makes considerable efforts not to exploit that power disparity to create insecurity or tyranny. For example, many fans point to the scout ship as an obvious opportunity for intervention. The technology within is powerful, and humanity arguably isn't ready. Since it's a Kryptonian ship and Kal-El is Kryptonian, some claim he should have taken the ship from them. Moreover, since Superman had the power, because no one could stop him, he was obliged to do so. However, putting aside Kal's questionable claim to the ship, even if he agrees that it's too powerful, imagine what intervention means. It means he doesn't trust humanity that he knows better and that he will act unilaterally without their consent because he has the power to do so. No, Clark didn't do that. Instead, he acts like his father and gives America space and, until Lex Luthor, they basically proved worthy of that trust. They acted with prudence and caution. In the two years since the BZE, no one had unlocked the ship until Lex. They were deliberate and considerate because Superman gave them that opportunity. The scout ship is proof that Superman believes in the power of example over the example of power. 
showing what to do rather than showing what he can do. There are a dozen different other issues or ills you could imagine in which Superman does not speak up or intervene because Clark wants to show that trust and give that opportunity. Jor-El says, they will race and they will join you in the sun, not you will make them race or you will bring them to the sun. The imposition of Superman's power strips humanity of its will and it's why Superman is so judicious in avoiding actions which act as judgment. He avoids arrests, he avoids crime, he avoids war, he avoids politics. I'm not saying that this is the ideal Superman, but at the start of his journey, in his introduction to mankind, Clark is extremely careful not to force his ideals, beliefs, or positions upon humanity, undermining their choice and will. And this already exists in Man of Steel. Jonathan tells Clark he's going to change everything, so Clark treats that with the gravity it deserves. Instead of haphazardly giving interviews and intervening in partisan manners, that's why it's such a tremendous change when he gets involved in the tangle of interests in Nairobi, or when he starts to act internationally, or when he confronts Batman personally, or when he decides to speak to Congress. All spurred on by Lex Luthor's machinations. So we've seen how Man of Steel addresses the espionage issues across these films. The pragmatism of a warrior, the empathetic understanding of an undercover agent, and the upbringing to avoid the corruption of invisibility or exploiting differences in power. I love that these films build their ideas in layers so that you can trace almost any of them back to Man of Steel. In Wonder Woman, there's being disillusioned and determining what mankind deserves. And Clark goes through that journey against a rough world, but doesn't hold that journey against it when Zod poses the question. In Suicide Squad, is there a difference between bad and evil? Can villains do some good? And Man of Steel confronts those kinds of questions of nuance with its controversial scenes, challenging assumptions about what a hero is and whether those definitions are absolute. In BVS, it is very much about the wielding of power against the powerless and their response. And when Zod enters the picture, we get an extreme example of the divide in how deferential one is to humanity's way of life versus the one who barely considers them much more than insects. And we can also show how BVS maps onto the actions of Kenny, but another time. And there's still so many espionage elements in Man of Steel that we could talk about. Government paranoia, online leaks, Pentagon suppression, DARPA secrecy, drone surveillance, detaining Lois at a classified location, disinformation, disguise, and on and on. But I've run out of time. One last thing before we wrap this up. The bullying scene shows how Superman was raised for peace. Diana was created as a weapon, raised by warriors, and becomes Wonder Woman in war. Batman was created to war on crime, but Superman was not raised to fight or war, but always with the entire world in mind, be it Krypton or Earth. It always existed only as an abstract concept in his mind, but I can imagine the spark of the Superman being born in that first flight when he beholds the entire planet and sees that in the grand scheme of things, we're all one. This cognitive shift is often referred to as the overview effect. The Apollo 8 spacecraft has successfully completed its first three orbits around the moon. This is the first time that humans have ever traveled beyond low Earth orbit. On the vessel's fourth pass, the Earth slowly comes into view and reveals itself above the moon's horizon. When the crew was safely home a few days later, they were asked about the mission. Anders famously replied, we went to the moon, but we actually discovered Earth. What did he and his fellow crewmates feel 
in this incredible moment. In a study released just this past year, a team of researchers at the University of Pennsylvania examined the testimonies of hundreds of astronauts who had the opportunity to view the Earth from space. Their analysis uncovered three common feelings. First, a greater appreciation for Earth's beauty. Second, an increased sense of connection to all other living beings. And third, an unexpected, often overwhelming sense of emotion. The researchers believe that seeing the Earth from a great distance provokes someone to develop new cognitive frameworks to understand what they are seeing. They believe these astronauts were forever changed by this new view, this new perspective, this new visual truth. This feeling is commonly referred to as the overview effect. Only 558 people have ever been to outer space. 558 people had the opportunity to gaze down in awe, to wonder at our planet floating in an infinite sea of darkness. I believe that viewing the Earth from the overview perspective is more important now than ever before. Through the incredible technology of these high-flying cameras, we can see, monitor, and expose the unprecedented impact that we are having. And whether we are scientists, or engineers, or policymakers, or investors, or artists, if we can adopt a more expansive perspective, embrace the truth of what is going on, and contemplate the long-term health of our planet, we will create a better and safer and smarter future for our one and only home. Shown the big picture and with that perspective, Clark wants to protect the entire world. It's funny, with his undercover upbringing and the ability to see all spectrums, hear any sound, appear anywhere in the world, and so on, Clark could be the ultimate intelligence agent. But as someone who sees the whole planet without sides, who would he spy for without war, fighting, or factions? What need is there for the intelligence agent or spy? Superman protects the peace of the planet for that possible tomorrow. That said, I can't wait to see him fight in Justice League. <laughs> okay, I've rambled on long enough, so thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please share the show and subscribe. I'm Doc, your DC Films Justice League Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time. You're the answer, son. Some end notes after editing. <laughs> Oh, this episode. Uh, espionage is so broad. There were so many ways to go, and I just didn't have time to tailor the tale. An airy and light version would have gone through spy fiction, gadgets, disguises, and psychology. But I wanted to get into more real-world espionage to show that studying the real world is almost always rewarding with DC films. But that got really heavy with complicated geopolitics and dense philosophy, so I pared it back. But I do want to share at least two artifacts left over from that heavier version of the episode. Both are sayings or expressions related to political power. The first, who watches the Watchmen, was obviously applicable to this episode and used today to talk about power and accountability. And of course, I drew comparisons between DC Films and Alan Moore's work. But the tidbit that was a little too off topic was how this line is completely taken out of context today. In its original usage, it poses a satirical dilemma of enforcing chastity on an unfaithful wife. If you place guards to keep men out, she will simply cheat with the guard. And so, who guards the guards? <laughs>
And then I launch into the death of the author and cultivating meaning and value unintended by the creator or the line in this case, which was, I think, a few digressions too deep, even for me. (laughs) The second saying, again, is about the imbalance of power. The strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must. The following two minute clip summarizes. In his 2012 book on politics, political historian Alan Ryan reflects on the conflict between Athens and Milos during the Peloponnesian War. It is famous as the worst atrocity committed by a usually decent society, but even more as one of the most famous assertions in history of the rights of unbridled power. The Peloponnesian War was fought by the Athenian Empire against Sparta's Peloponnesian League. Milos was a small island that wished to remain neutral during the war. The Athenians threatened to destroy Milos unless it became an ally of Athens and paid tribute. Despite the threats, Milos refused to agree to the Athenian terms. As a result, Athens slaughtered all Melian men of military age and enslaved all of the women and children. In the ancient Greek historian Thucydides' account of the war, he imagines the dialogue that took place between the Athenian and Melian ambassadors before the battle. The Melian ambassadors assert that though they are weaker than Athens, they will prevail against them with the help of the gods, because the Athenians are unjustly abusing their power. We trust that the gods may grant us fortune as good as yours, since we are just men fighting against unjust. The Athenians retort that both gods and men respect only one thing, power. Of the gods we believe, and of men we know, that by a necessary law of their nature, they rule wherever they can. And it is not as if we were the first to make this law, or to act upon it when made. We found it existing before us, and shall leave it to exist forever after us. All we do is to make use of it, knowing that you and everybody else, having the same powers we have, would do the same as we do. The political policies of Athens and Milos illustrate the competing theories of political realism and political idealism. It is important to note that political idealists are not pacifists. Milos chose to go to war rather than to accept Athens' terms of peace. The difference between Athens and Milos is the motivation behind their actions. Athens was motivated by the maintenance and acquisition of power, while Milos was motivated by purely moral sentiments. Thucydides' account of the Peloponnesian War provides a concise expression of this harsh fact. The strong do what they can, and the weak suffer what they must. So, hopefully, the application to this episode is obvious. Of course, addressing it became overwhelming as it ties to so many other topics, such as Plato, who wrote his Republic against the backdrop of the Peloponnesian War. And despite being an Athenian, a city-state that supported democracy, Plato was deeply skeptical of democracy, having seen the dangers of it directly in the death of his mentor Socrates. So even as Athens was at war with Sparta, Plato was inspired by Spartan ideas of oligarchy and elites, a society somewhat similar to Krypton's. And again, I found myself spinning to too many tangents before getting back to the film. And I just couldn't make it coherent, so I simply cut it. And along those lines, here are a few footnotes excised out of each movie segment. With Wonder Woman, I talked about the difference between a spy and a scout. And originally, instead of the example of a scout on a mountaintop to establish a better view, I put the scout in a steeple. After all, from the vantage point of a church tower overlooking a trench line, you could see every enemy movement and rain artillery exactly where it ought to go. That's an enormous advantage that isn't going to remain standing after a year-long stalemate. And that reinforces that master apologetic that this is a bedtime story. 
like The Princess Bride, which is absolutely brilliant. In the movie, seeing the steeple-top from the trenches gives the audience orientation and a sense of geography, but in reality, the Allies would have reduced that ruse to rubble long ago or suffer the consequences. And obviously, that digression ground the distinction between spies and scouts to a halt, so we're discussing it here. Really, I've got dozens of these, but just one more. We talked about how growing and waiting can be doing something, and I applied that to Diana, asking rhetorically, what if Steve in World War I had happened upon Themyscira when she appeared to be 12. In that case, should Antiope have told Diana, you must go, Diana, go. After all, lives are still at stake. Diana is still a demigod, still the god killer, so why not? Yet some of those who say no may turn around and condemn Jonathan for not being certain that a 13-year-old Clark should show himself. <laughs> Well, let's move on to BVS. As covered in that segment, there were a ton of espionage topics to talk about. Encryption, earbuds, electronic surveillance, etc. I focused in on Nairomi not only because it was a literal spy op, but because the metaphor and morality of drones is especially apt for Superman. But one digression I cut was speculation that Agent Talon's last lines were more a multi-layered manipulation. In the simplest terms, Talon pretends to reveal too much by accident, hoping to be held hostage long enough for Python to rescue them both. Talon says, we just used her credentials as cover. Given everything that we discussed, that's an incredibly scandalous thing to let slip accidentally. Selling out the CIA for the sake of Lois's safety? That's how Talon wants it to play. Of course, if Talon really was so soft-hearted or principled, would he have agreed to risk her life to begin with? A spy this deep in, with stakes this high, might have to have a certain ruthless fortitude or psychology. If Lois living means a massive blow to American security, it's quite possible a sterling agent counts her as collateral. After all, isn't that exactly what the spooks at Drone Command did? Write Lois off as collateral to the drone strike. But Talon wants the general to think he'll do anything to save Lois, even unwittingly admitting to an illegal American operation. Talon makes it sound like he wants to negotiate a other terms, but the real bait intentionally placed, the sincerely tempting thing, is to keep Talon alive long enough to have him repeat and broadcast his statement to the world to show the hypocrisy of the CIA and expose those pious American fictions. This is an extremely attractive proposition which can keep Talon and Lois alive long enough for Python to intervene. The problem is that the general suspects this too. He doesn't fall for it. He knows that if he puts Talon in front of a camera to claim that he's CIA, Talon will deny it to his death. He summarily executes Talon, but he keeps Lois because she can serve the same function but better. Talon's job was to obscure the truth, but Lois' job is to publish it. If she says, I'm in this mess because the CIA sent a spy in with me, the general gets most of what he wants. Lois says that she doesn't know, and we know that she's sincere, and that illustrates why it's a dangerous precedent to use journalists as cover. It means that journalists, completely ignorant of intelligence activities, can be accused of being spies and held to account for their actions. Well, while we're in Nairobi, we've already talked about whether Superman smashed the general through a wall rather than dragged the general through behind him. And another way to look at that issue is to do another thought experiment. Imagine Lois isn't there. 
that Amajog is just holding a gun under his own chin. Imagine Superman wants to save Amajog from himself. What would he do? Whatever he does, it has to be fast, right? Faster than a trigger pull, accidental or otherwise. And whatever he does, it has to be safe too, right? As little permanent damage as possible. Okay, so that takes Heat Vision right out. Heat Vision isn't fast enough. Clark needed Lois to hold still to do his surgery. And we've seen Heat Vision dodged many times, even by a powerless human like Batman. Its effects are either too slow, too permanent, or too dangerous. In terms of super speed, we haven't seen that kind of safe precision from Superman yet. Yeah, we saw him grab a grenade out of the air, which travels about twice as fast as a fastball. But when he zero steps through the cloud, he's moving air. There's no speed force mitigation. As a quick aside, I am so looking forward to the Flash in Justice League because while in combat he just pushes people and runs away, we've seen hints of high speed precision with Wonder Woman's sword. Alright, so if Superman goes for the gun, the collision could be an issue given that it's under his chin. Well, what about simply a concussion? What we really want to do is either shut down the gun or shut down his ability to use it. And just hitting him would work. It would make him unconscious quickly so he couldn't use the gun. The problem is that Hitting him risks permanent damage. The palm push from Superman sends armored Batman flying. Unarmored Amajog would die on impact or upon violent deceleration. In the real world, it only takes a single punch to kill. Consider this proposal then. Let's say Superman wants to knock Amajog out with G-Lock. That's g dash. LOC. It stands for G-Force Loss of Consciousness. It occurs when a person is accelerated in a way where their blood drains from their brain and they pass out. It comes up most commonly in the context of fighter pilots or astronauts. So as long as you don't exceed too many Gs or sustain high Gs for too long, the blood returns, the person recovers, and there's no permanent damage. If that is how Superman wanted to render Amajog unconscious, even without Lois, if all he can about was Amajog's safety, we'd see exactly the same thing we saw in BVS. If Superman doesn't care about Amajog's welfare and wasn't trying to avoid permanent damage, then why bother to follow through with the wall? It's not like he can't stop. We know from his zero step through the smokescreen later that he can. And if all he does is hit Amajog or even just throw him against the wall, it accomplishes exactly the same thing. Amajog down, out, and damaged. But if Superman wants to keep the general safe, he needs runway room to do it, distance and time to accelerate Amajog up to G-Lock, and to safely decelerate him down without suffering death or permanent damage. Under G-Lock theory, the absolute safest thing Superman can do for him is exactly what we see, and smashing Amajog through walls offers absolutely no advantages in terms of hurting or harming Amajog than simply hitting Amajog or throwing him against a wall. In other words, our theory explains why he follows through, the other theory provides no in-story narrative explanation for why he follows through. And since the scene is presented ambiguously, it acts as a Rorschach test of your prejudices. If you're burdened with baggages and biases against the Superman, you imagine that the general is splattered, shattered, and impossibly intact, even when flesh can't survive being sent through a stone wall, much less two. But if you keep an open and objective mind, you'll let the film tell you later what happened. Another big cut here 
was a lot of the discussion on KG Beast and the KGB. The roots of the character, his use of spycraft, and comparing and contrasting him with other spies. I'm not going to rehash it, but Anatoly stood out, especially in following orders, something that our other spies seem to struggle with. I went into the history of the KGB and how its influence is still being felt to this day, and contrasted their approach to intelligence against ours, but it was all too much for just a supporting villain. But on that point, originally, I was disappointed that out of all the comic book characters that BVS could have brought to life, why did they give such a relatively obscure villain so much screen time? However, viewed as a spy film, he's a great choice, because he's the perfect level of competence and the perfect level of obscurity. Fans recognize the name and appreciate the nod, but none find him so precious that we revolt if he perishes. The second biggest cut was something that I kept circling but had trouble figuring out where it fits, and that's the decision-making surrounding ethical or moral dilemmas. Originally, I discussed the debates around sacrificing some lives for the greater good. Lois is considering the question, costs and consequences, because she raises it with Clark when she's in the tub. What is one life, her life, compared to some other greater good? What is their relationship compared to Superman's symbol and mission? Especially with the stakes involved in spy films and the autonomy afforded them, they're almost always making these kinds of life and death calls, in ways that we rarely question within the context of frothy films, but which BVS makes much meatier. Deciding Lois is collateral is unsympathetic, but is it necessarily wrong? What about the decision to nuke Doomsday with Superman as collateral? I went back and forth between these two examples and several others, like stopping Zod and Batman's 1% Doctrine, and had to stop recording when I realized how far I'd strayed from spies. By the time I was talking about the trolley problem with autonomous drones, I knew I had lost the plot. <laughs> But that is why I love these films. If you don't just view them as films superficially, they provide a ton of interesting hypotheticals to digest and really analyze from all sorts of perspectives like art, history, politics, philosophy, psychology, or science. You can use these films to discuss ethical and moral frameworks. Of course, these films also show how people can cruise through the world without giving those things nary a thought, and maybe some of the consequences of that, for example, a lack of empathy. With Suicide Squad, I cut out the structure and evolution of our intelligence community. It was dry and the only highlights were Argus and Top Secret Clearance. But rather than give you a primer on the alphabet soup of agencies, if you're really interested, it's much easier to just read it than listen to me ramble on about it. So that was cut. That said, if you want to be a responsible citizen, you should learn a little bit about the big agencies, jurisdictions, and duties so that you have an idea of when they've gone astray or overreaching or acting outside their authority. I'm not going to do it, but it would be so interesting to teach a civics course using DC films and all the ground that they cover. Originally, I went more into Japanese internment, black sites, and other American atrocities, but that just got too dark, and I tread too much into anti-metahuman sentiment in an X-Men sort of way. Remember, there was this seething segment of society ready to burn Superman in effigy, with signs and demonstrations about their resentments. After Superman's sacrifice, that's sent back to being an extreme position. But some some of that might still get expressed against the incarcerated Suicide Squad. But really, I think that's more the power dynamics of detention and the unaccountable nature of a black site that addresses the sadism more than any kind of resentment against metahumans. So that entire discussion was cut along with a whole bunch of dark stories about what happens to people in deep cover, and that led to a cut at the beginning of the Man of Steel segment. Out of the horrors of American atrocities, I retread a bunch of reasons why Jonathan and Martha would be skeptical of the government in 1980. 
1980 when finding and raising Clark. And the list of scandals in the 70s was a little disheartening, though I miss mentioning Three Days of the Condor, Redford's post-Watergate spy thriller. But tenuous ties aside, let's just say it's completely plausible that it wouldn't be their first instinct to call or trust the government then. At the top of the Man of Steel segment, I just want to mention two quick notes. One is debunking the idea that the bully grows up to be the priest. Unless they decided to credit one character under two different character names, Kenny Braverman did not grow up to be Father Leone. I'm not saying that you can't get something out of that interpretation, but it doesn't appear to be the intention of the scene. And the other quick footnote is the inspiration for the Dada loop. It was preceded by the Uda loop. Observe, orient, decide, and act. And that was developed by Colonel John Boyd, who earned the nickname 42nd Boyd because he could defeat any opponent in less than 40 seconds based on his tactical brilliance in the air. I mention that because if you're interested in these decision loops, there's much more material about the OODA loop than the data loop. <laughs> Okay, so in the episode, I made a point of showing how inaction can be used to show trust. Jonathan doesn't step in immediately when he sees Clark being bullied, and Superman doesn't take the scout ship or start laying down the law immediately after his debut. Those were more direct examples coming from the undercover upbringing to interfering with humanity. But the lesson of trust, or how that's viewed, is more abstract. And I had a more concrete example, which I cut because it was a little too long of a digression, but basically, it's an explanation of this dialogue. Thank you. For what? For believing in me. It didn't make much difference in the end. It did to me. Remember, this is immediately after the interview scene, so when or where did Lois show her belief in Clark? It was between Zod's ultimatum and Superman's arrival at the base. As Perry puts it, the entire world is being threatened here. If Lois didn't believe in Clark, there is no evening comforting Martha. There is no morning musings at the church. There is no flashback to reflect upon and no conversation with Father Leone. And there's no introduction to the military. If Lois doubted Clark and turned him over to the authorities, they'd be at his Kansas farm in the middle of the night. Instead, Lois believed Clark would do what needed to be done without her intervention. She held on to his secret, trusting him. Lois says it didn't make a difference because he still ends up showing himself to the military and turning himself over to Zod. Same as if she had given up his secret hours earlier. But consider the difference to Clark knowing that Lois believes in him, trusts in him that much. Having someone believe in you can make all the difference. Another deleted digression was the difference between feeling happy and having meaning. Often the benchmark for parenting is happiness. Do whatever makes you happy. But ironically, the pursuit of happiness makes people miserable, whereas making your life meaningful in turn makes you happy. Links in the show notes to the references and the resources, but the meaning metric has four foundations. Belonging, purpose, transcendence, and story. So I go into how Jonathan and Martha provide Clark with those things, which make his struggle deeply meaningful and and worth pursuing even after Jonathan passes, even as Clark is wandering, and even years a decade and a half pass, Clark keeps after these things amazingly. This was just another way of showing how the Kents raised Clark right, even if they were improvising and imperfect. How did they make Clark feel like he was family and belonged? 
How did they give Clark a sense of purpose, destiny, and contribution? How did they help Clark separate from the here, now, immediate, and material, and look beyond and bigger? What was the story they instilled into Clark? I think you can answer these for yourselves, and that's why I cut the really pedantic point-by-point comparison of how Clark learns so much in Man of Steel, which can be applied to BVS and beyond. But I do want to point this one out. As much as armchair critics like to second-guess the Kents, the Kents themselves admit their their actions were ad hoc. We've been doing the best we can, and we've been making this up as we go along. So maybe, maybe our best isn't good enough anymore. How could it be otherwise? There's no parenting manual or support group for raising E.T. That improvisation is again condemned by critics in BVS, even when the film explicitly points it out. Maybe he's just a guy trying to do the right thing. I mean, I'm sorry if Superman didn't conform to your exact perceptions of the perfect plan of action, but surely you can see how somebody can be well-intentioned but come to a different conclusion or course than yourself, right? You can't possibly be so arrogant as to think all right-thinking people would only do the things in one possible way when many of these are essentially issues of first impression that no one has faced before. (laughs) If only it were so. In any case, one of the most wonderfully human and parallel moments is Clark calling his mom because he's come to completely sympathize with his father. In the station wagon, before the tornado, for all of Jonathan's love and efforts, Clark still said something as hurtful as, you're not my dad, questioning his parenthood. And Jonathan forgave, loved, and sacrificed himself regardless. Then in Dawn of Justice, Clark finds that for all of Superman's love and effort, the world still asked, must there be a Superman questioning his very right to exist? In that moment, imagine how he'd sympathize with his dad about those doubts, and why he calls home wanting wisdom, wanting to know how did his dad deal with it. How come dad never left Kansas? I just wish it was more simple. And eventually, after remembering John on the mountaintop, Superman forgave, loved, and sacrificed himself regardless. None of them are perfect, but damn if they didn't all do their best. So many contentious kids come around on their parents once they have their own kids and come to understand what they put their parents through. Empathy is amazing, and it lets you see that they were trying to do their best. That's all I can do each episode, despite everything I want to pack in. I haven't even got to the overview effect or near-death experiences or group intelligence. I left out my own family ties to military intelligence, but from all the researches and cuts, I think you might see that this isn't sustainable. At least for now, this is going to be the last episode of the silk. When Justice League comes out, we're going to have five DC films and double our roster of heroes. And if I only spend five minutes on every film, well, that's already almost half an hour. So for now, I think we got to say goodbye to the survey episodes and I have to rethink the structure and production of the show. But we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. I can't wait to see Aquaman in action. Batman bring the team together. Cyborg show off his powers. Every one of these characters is compelling. Flash is going to be fantastic and funny. Gal's Wonder Woman is going to be regal and wild. I'm so excited to see Henry Superman again on the big screen. I'm essentially out of it until Justice League, so see you then. There's a man who leads a life of danger To everyone he meets, he stays a stranger The chance he takes Odds are he won't live to see tomorrow Secret 
that you find A pretty face can hide an evil mind I'll be careful what you say Or you give yourself away Odds are you won't live to see tomorrow Secret Asian man Secret Asian man They giving you a number And taking away your name Answer, son.